Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. I want to begin today with the chanting of Lamentations, verses 1, 1, chapter 1, verse 1, by Cantor Daniel Ben Lolo of Kehilat Beth Israel of Ottawa. How great the city once filled with people is now alone. The city once renowned among nations is now like a widow. She who was once a princess among states is now forced to pay tribute. Those verses and others from the Book of Lamentations will be chanted in synagogues and temples across the world on Monday evening as the Jewish people prepare for the observance of the holiday known as Tisha B'Av, the ninth of the Hebrew month of Av, the traditional day of mourning for the destruction of the temples in Jerusalem. I'm going to ask the cantor to chant once more those opening verses, for they set the scene for the mournful remembrance of the destruction of the temples and set the scene for this special summer holiday. So, Cantor, if I could ask you to chant once again and ask my listeners to pay special attention not so much to the word, but to the mournful cry of Echa. Thank you, Cantor Daniel Ben Lolo of Kihilat Beth Israel of Ottawa, Canada. According to Jewish tradition, the first temple built by King Solomon was destroyed by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BCE on the 10th day of Av. According to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 3, verse 12, whereas in the corresponding record in 2 Kings 25, 8 through 9, the date is given as the 7th of Av. The Tosefta Ta'anit explains the discrepancy by stating the destruction of the outer walls and the courtyard started on the 7th of Av, while the whole edifice was destroyed on the 10th of Av. 
Rav Yochanan declared that he would have fixed the fast of the 10th of Av because it was on that day that the greater part of the calamity happened. The rabbis of the Talmud, however, decided that it was more fitting to commemorate the beginning of the calamity. The second temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 CE on the 10th of Av, according to the historian Josephus in his book entitled The Jewish Wars. This day is still observed as a day of mourning by the Kararites, that sect of Jews who did not believe in the Talmudic rabbis. The Talmud, however, gives the date as the 9th of Av, which became accepted as the anniversary of both destructions in the Talmudic period. The Talmud justifies the 9th of Av as a major day of mourning because of a series of calamities occurred on that day throughout Jewish history. The rabbis tell us that five disasters on the 9th of Av were decreed that the children of Israel, after the exodus of Egypt, should not enter the promised land. The second and third events, of course, are the first and second temple. Betar, the last strang, strang, stronghold of the leaders of the Bar Kokhba revolt, was captured in 135 CE. And the fifth one, one year later, the Roman Emperor Hadrian established a heathen temple on the site of the temple and rebuilt Jerusalem as a pagan city, which was named Aella Capitolina, which with Jews were forbidden to enter. The expulsion of Jews from Spain in 1492 is said to have occurred on the 9th of Av. And of course, throughout Jewish history, there are other events that are associated with this particular holiday. In the Second World War, some suggest that the... Um, Nuremberg laws were promulgated on the 9th of Av, and that Kristallnacht began on the 9th of November and tried to connect it to uh, the holiday, the fast day of the 9th of Av, as did the expulsion of the Jews from England. The 9th of Av becomes a symbol for all the persecution and misfortunes of the Jewish people for the loss of national independence and the sufferings in exile. The massacres of whole communities during the Crusades intensified this association. Now, throughout Jewish history, it is uncertain whether or how the 9th of Av began to be observed as a day of mourning, in Zechariah chapter 7, 5, such an inquiry is quoted and the prophet's answer is, in, is that instead of fasting, they, the Israelites, should love truth and peace, as a result of which the former days of fast and mourning would become days of joy and gladness. The Talmud tells us that Rabbi Eliezer ben Saduk who lived before and after the destruction of the Samkin Temple, did not fast on the 9th of Av, which was deferred because, the Sabbath, because of the Sabbath to the following day, since it was his family's traditional holiday of wood offerings, namely to bring a sacrifice to the temple. 
This would indicate that historically, fasting on the ninth of Av was observed during the period of the Second Temple too. In any case, fasting on the ninth of Av was observed as early as the Mishnaic period, between the first and second century of the Common Era. Some rabbis advocated permanent abstention from wine and meat in memory of the destruction of the temple. What this was regarded as an excessive demand. The general rule in the Talmud for the morning rites of Tisha B'Av is that a person is obligated to observe it on all morning rites, which apply in the case of the death of the next of kin. These morning rites have to be observed from sunset to sunset. Some morning rites are already observed during the weeks prior to Tisha B'Av from the fast of the 17th of Tammuz. On the first of Av, morning rites are intensified. On the eve of Tisha B'Av, at the final meal before the fast, one may neither partake of two cooked dishes, nor eat meat, nor drink wine. It is customary to eat a boiled egg at this meal as a symbol of mourning and to sprinkle ashes on it. Grace after this meal, which is usually said with great joy, is said individually and silently. Traditionally, the following rules are observed on the fast of Tisha B'Av. A complete abstention from food and drinking. Bathing is strictly forbidden. Washing of the face and hands is permissible for cleansing purposes only. The use of any oils or ointments for anointing and the application of perfumes are forbidden, as is sexual intercourse. It is forbidden to put on footwear made of leather. Therefore, the tenth blessing of the morning benedictions, originally recited when putting on shoes, is omitted. One must either sit on the ground or on a low stool, if this all sounds familiar. It is similar to the behavior seen by traditional Jews on Yom Kippur or during the seven days of Shiva. It is customary to abstain from work and business because Tisha B'Av was regarded as an inauspicious day and it was considered bad luck to work on this day. The study of Torah is forbidden because it is a source of joy. However, the reading of the Scroll of Lamentations and the commentary, the book of Job and the curses of Leviticus chapter 26, verses 14 through 42, um, are permitted. One last note about the customs. On the night of Tisha B'Av, the pious used to sleep on the floor with a stone as a pillow. Many fasted until the noon of the 10th of Av. Meat and wine were not consumed until the afternoon of the 10th of Av, although some of the morning rites were lessened from Tisha B'Av afternoon onward based on the belief that Tisha B'Av will again be a holiday since the Messiah will be born then. Toward the end of the 17th century, the 1600s, strict observance of Tisha B'Av also became a mark of adherence to Orthodox Rabbinic Judaism after the pseudo-Messiah Shabbatai Tzvi had abolished the fast of Tisha B'Av and turned it into a day of rejoicing. This holiday, then, comes in the middle of the summer, 
And it is, of course, um, associated with the Book of Lamentations, as you heard from Cantor Ben Lolo chant. I want to spend a bit of time on the Book of Lamentations, for while the holiday of the observance of Tisha B'Av is um, pretty um, well known in the Jewish community and perhaps known in the non-Jewish community, and it is a day of historical remembrance of events that have taken place um, throughout history. Um, it is the scroll of Lamentations, known in Hebrew as Migilat Echa, which is the lament for the destruction of the first temple that speaks of the suffering and the pain of Jewish tra- tra- tragedy throughout the ages. It is the Book of Lamentations, one of the five scrolls in the Hebrew Bible. I'm sure the others, the scroll of Esther, the scroll of the Song of Songs, the scroll of Ruth, the scroll of Kohelet, Ecclesiastes, are known to many of you. And each of these scrolls is read in a synagogue on a different holiday. The five scrolls form the third section of the Hebrew Bible known as Ketuvim, also known in English as the writing or the hagiographia. In the Roman Catholic version of the Bible, Lamentations is appended directly to the book of Jeremiah, um, who is thought by tradition to be the author, but not by modern scholarship, which is in the prophetic section of the Bible. Lamentations begins with the Hebrew word echa, how. The book is a theological and prophetic response to the destruction of the first temple in Jerusalem. It tells us in the Babylonian Talmud that it was written by the prophet Jeremiah who lived at the time of the destruction. Chapters 1, 2, and 4 of Lamentations are an alphabetic acrostic with each line starting with another letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 3 is a threefold acrostic, acrostic, with three lines for each letter of the alphabet. Echa means why. This is a book that asks the question, why? Why did these things happen to the Jewish people? Lamentations is not concerned with the technical historical details of the destruction, but rather with the larger meta-historical issues. Why did God, who had once been Israel's redeemer, acquiesce to the destruction of his holy city and temple? Why is God's love no longer evident? How can it be, as stated in verse 1, chapter 1, how can the great city once filled with people now be alone? The city once renowned among nations be like a widow. She, who was once a princess among states, is now forced to pay tribute. How is it that the city is empty? Lamentations as a text offers more questions than answers, 
But asking questions is an important step in dealing with the theological crisis posed by the destruction of the temple. Lamentations does not question God's justice in destroying Jerusalem. Jerusalem has sinned, the book proclaims in chapter 1, verse 8. Let me read it to you. Jerusalem has sinned greatly, the state book states. Therefore, she has become defiled. Those who once honored her, having now seen her nakedness, hold her in contempt. All she can do now is sigh and fall back. So the book proclaims that Jerusalem has sinned and therefore being punished. Lamentation describes God as participating in the destruction of Jerusalem. Let me read to you from chapter 1, verse 14. The yoke of my Jerusalem sins is in his hands is ready. They twine together, come upon my neck, cause my strength to fail. God has given me into the hands of one against whom I cannot stand up. The book asserts that because of Jerusalem's sins, God has given Jerusalem over to the Babylonians. The book sees the Babylonians as God's instrument and sees God as the true author of Jerusalem's destruction. Chapter 2 of Lamentations expresses this succinctly. God has destroyed and has not mercy. All the places of Jacob. Chapter 2, verse 2. I'll read it to you in its entirety. Uh, Perhaps that will help you uh, understand. Without pity, God swallowed up all the settlements of Israel. Furiously, God destroyed the fortified cities of the daughter of Judah. God brought down the realm and all of its leaders in disgrace. Chapter 2, verse 5. God has become like the enemy, swallowing up Israel or destroying Israel. God consumed all the palaces, destroying its fortified places. God has increased mourning and lamenting for the daughter of Zion. A recurring motif in this book is the suffering of Jerusalem and its people. The first chapter speaks about the shock of seeing Jerusalem, which was once a royal city to which pilgrims throng, become an isolated pariah. The second chapter speaks of the reaction of those who survived the destructions. I quote again from the text, chapter 2, 11 and 12, My eyes are worn out with tears. My bowels churn because the destruction of my people, as babies and sucklings become weak in the squares of the city. To their mothers they say, Where is grain or wine? as they become faint as the dead in the squares of the city, as their soul pour out into their mother's lap. The author of Lamentations recognizes that the innocent, such as the babies, suffered along with those who deserve punishment, and speaks of the complexity of Jerusalem's city. Here again from chapter 2. The sin of my people was greater than that of Sodom, yet... Her Jerusalem's Nazarites were purer than snow, whiter than milk. The vivid descriptions of suffering 
together with the mention of innocence, serve as a plea of mercy from God. See, O God, and look to whom you have done this. Shall women eat their produce and the babies whom they tend? Shall priest and prophet be killed in the temple of God? Lamentations as a text does not remonstrate with God, nor accuse God of injustice. Those would be questions asked after later historical tragedies. In the book of Lamentations, we ask for God's mercy. Many of the descriptions of suffering in the book have close parallels in ancient Near Eastern laments on city destructions. For example, the image of the personified Jerusalem weeping in Lamentations is parallel to an image we find in an ancient Sumerian city laments, the goddess weeping over a destroyed sanctuary. Other images in Lamentations, such as the description of the starving mother eating her baby, appears in many Near Eastern siege narratives. But these parallel points are used in Lamentation's larger and distinct argument. Jerusalem rebelled against God and was punished by God for its rebellion. And despite the justice of God's actions in destroying the city, the text says the Israelites asked God for mercy. There is no mention of God having been weakened by the destruction or of Israel turning away from God as a result of the destruction. Again, that would happen much later in history, when tragedy would lead Jews, Israelites, the descendants of the Israelites, to question where was God in the midst of tragedy. In the book of Lamentations, the theology is God was there in the very middle of it, and therefore there is no need to ask questions. On the contrary, the book introduces the idea of renewing the God-Israel relationship as a response to the tragedy. We see in chapter 3 of Lamentations, which strikes a more personal note, let me read to you how that begins. I am a man who has seen suffering but I will read to you the entirety of it. Ani ani beshevet I am the one who has endured misery, suffering by the rod of God's wrath. Here the anonymous author presents a set of bona fides that gives legitimacy to what preceded and what follows. Among the author's personal thoughts on the destruction we find again in chapter 3, we will search our ways and investigate. We will return to God. And the book ends with the same theme of return, but on God's part. Let me read to you how chapter 5 ends, because there is only five chapters. Hashivenu Adonai Alecha, Venashuva Chadesh Yamenu Bikerim. Bring us back to you, Adonai. Let us return, bring us back to the days of old, says verse 21. This is one of the most poignant verses in the entire book of Lamentations, which is probably why the rabbis inserted it 
in the liturgy prior to returning the Torah to the Ark after it had been read publicly. Recognizing that the public reading of the Torah is an enactment of its revelation, the worshippers standing at the foot of the mountain, as it were, wistful about that time in the wilderness when everything seemed perfect and all was possible. Again, chapter 5 ends with the verses, but rather you have indeed rejected us. You have been an exceedingly furious with us. Instead of allowing the people back into Jerusalem, thus responding to their prayers and expressed desire to repent, God continues, according to the author, to be angry. The people want to return, but God refuses their advance. And without the willing partnership of God, there can be no return. There can be no continued covenantal relationship. Moreover, the author of this text feels that God seems to be making things worse for the people. Lamentations has for millennia served as the archetype of the Jewish response to national calamity, of which we identified earlier this morning. It is read on the synagogue on the fast day, which commemorates the anniversary of the destruction of the temple. It is followed in the synagogue service by the reading of other lamentations or keynote, composed throughout the centuries by rabbis, poets, in response to other major Jewish tragedies, such as the Crusades, the burning of the Talmud in the 3rd century in Paris. These keynote follow the literary model of lamentations in many ways, and many of them begin with the word that opens the text, Echa, why? How could you let this happen? I want to end by sharing with you one interesting note about the book of Lamentations. Given all the voices and speakers in the book, it is striking that the one voice we do not hear as the voice of God. God does not respond to the wails and supplications of the voices in the scroll, neither to the bereft city nor to the bereft woman. This absence of God's personal voice is highlighted in chapter 3, verse 57, where the speaker, who appears to be a female, refers to the voice of God as a voice heard in the past, when God had been implored in desperate times and had answered the plea. At that time, the text says, God responded, Do not fear. The memory of divine assistance in the past expresses a powerful nostalgia for the temporary loss of divine presence. And perhaps that is the reason that Tisha B'Av is truly a mourning day, not solely about the destruction of the first and second temple, not solely about the calamities that have um, the Jewish people have faced throughout the generations, but rather, Lamentations reminds us that there are periods in time when the Jewish people and God seem not to be able to hear each other, that the voice of God is silent, not that God is absent, but the voice of God is silent. Tisha B'Av, 
um, reminds us of those terrible moments and urges us to put aside our anger over historical events and Shema Yisrael and hear God, hear O Israel, hear God's presence. For Jewish faith and Jewish facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you shalom. Have a good day. Yeah, Shalom.